What's up, everyone? Welcome to an all-new episode of Suiting Up Podcast. This is presented by Public.com and OutSystems, and it's episode number 12 of season three, with only three left after today. I'm your host, Paul Rabel. Today, we're fortunate to sit down with the captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs, Johnny Tavares. That's right. He's the captain of one of the largest and most historic franchises in all of hockey, and that's a role that we talk about on the show, from the fulfillment to it to the pressure. You can't imagine. It's like being the captain of Real Madrid or the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. Anyway, how did Johnny and I meet? There's a shared discipline and respect we have for lacrosse. It's what he actually played growing up in Canada. It's Canada's national sport of the summer. And how he learned about the influence a professional athlete can have on his or her locker room and community. That lens, though, was through his uncle, who's one of the greatest lacrosse players of all time, also a Johnny at least known in the Buffalo Bandits of the NLL community as Johnny T. And what I especially enjoyed about the show was John Tavares' ability to talk about his personal and professional ambitions, that story of his career, while he's still in it. He was noted as the next Wayne Gretzky. That's pressure. But he was shattering records, Gretzky's records, and having junior hockey rules change to elevate him in the ranks to all those challenges met by his injury when he was playing for the national team, Team Canada, in 2014. He ended up winning gold alongside some of the greatest ever, like Sidney Crosby and Patrice Bergeron, Rick Nash, all the way to his life today, now as a husband and a father, and that shift in perspective one gets when they welcome a new life into the world. And speaking of, Johnny has a lot of life left in his career. The Maple Leafs are sitting atop of the North Division in the NHL right now, and he's leading the team on a chase to that very exclusive and coveted Stanley Cup. We're rooting for you, brother. Quick note, we recorded this show before the start of the 2021 season, and Johnny was training nearby his home in Toronto, and there was still a lot of speculation on how pro sports were going to net out after the collective COVID bubble tournaments we all hosted in 2020. Fortunately, in the U.S., our vaccination distribution has ramped up over the last 60 days. Over 25% of Americans are fully vaccinated, and 50% have had one dose with that nationwide average shot administering over 3 million people nationwide per day. Though Canada is a different story. Their rolling seven-day average of new cases rose above 200 million this month. And in contrast to the U.S., just under 3% of Canadians right now are fully vaccinated. The border between the U.S. and Canada has been closed since the pandemic started last March and will remain closed to leisure travelers at least another month through May 21st, impacting the NHL, Johnny and his family, and even the PLL and our Canadian players. We're thinking about our Canadian family, friends, teammates, and all who are fighting this virus remaining indoors, and I'm sending our sincerest thoughts your way. It's important that the U.S. take a leadership position in vaccination distribution worldwide, especially with our neighbors to the north. Here's the show with John Tavares. Suiting Up was made possible by our presenting sponsors, FirstPublic.com. They offer a whole new way to invest. Public makes the stock market social, too, so you can follow other investors, discover companies to believe in, and invest with any amount of your money. That is democratizing trading and giving us a space to talk about it. Visit Public.com forward slash Suiting Up. And OutSystems. They provide the tools to help companies quickly build apps for web and mobile to solve for your business needs. They helped us solve for ours at the PLL. We used OutSystems when we designed our COVID app for the championship series last summer. And we continue to work with OutSystems today. Check out OutSystems.com. 
Johnny T, appreciate it, man. No, thank you. This is uh, a first for me and uh, an honor. So a lax legend. So I love the game. So it's great to great to be on with you. You were on the path to becoming the next lax legend as you, as your uncle was, and I I always like revert back to Johnny T. Uh, having watched a lot of Bandits games, and I know you were uh, a ball boy then for a while growing up, but he's had a pretty big impact on your athletic career development, especially when you were younger, right? But what was that relationship like with with your uncle? It's pretty special. Uh, You know, it's still special to this day. So, you know, I don't think I realized it until a handful of years ago to have one of the best players ever in his sport to be a family member, to have that type of influence from a kid to even now you know, it hit me probably a few years ago, just be like, wow, like not every, not every kid gets this. This is really special. I knew it was always special who he was and being related to him, but I think the actual impact, things that I didn't even realize that now I can, I can make correlations to. And he's so good at uh, communicating, uh, always reaching out, always being available. And then uh, just his passion for, for the game of lacrosse and what he loved to do. Uh, the stories of him as a as a boy and and uh, playing and hearing those and, and then obviously being around him professionally, seeing really the type of uh, person he is with his teammates, yeah. uh, treating no matter, you know, whether you were one of the top scorers in the team or a guy that was in and out of the lineup, the, the way he embraced each and every guy, the, the positive energy he brought, uh, just had those interactions and being around that in the locker room. I, I never realized what an impact that was making on me and how that was going to be a big part of who I am and, and who I am as a hockey player. Um, as an athlete. So, um, and then I always remember after practice, him being so diligent, working on his shot, working on his stick, the little tricks that he loved to do is that was always kind of one of his things. His, his mind for the game was exceptional. So just, just seeing that on a daily basis, being around that. And then I remember going up to Grimsby, Ontario, uh, the bandits would practice there once a week and uh, just being around those practices, the professional environment, um, the intensity, Kilgore's were, were running the bandits at the time, and oh, those shit. guys are uh, yeah. those, those yeah. guys. Those guys got some intensity to them. So, Darius uh, asked me to fight him uh, during a game. He was leaning over the bench as as the coach for the bandits, and I uh, looked at him, and he was like, "Hey, fucking Rabel, look over here!" I looked at him, he's like, "You want to go me?" I was like, "Jesus Christ, this dude yeah. is a competitor." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're they're as competitive as they come. I remember seeing highlights of them in the early '90s, and I think it was Darius, uh, you know, getting five five in a game in the finals, and yeah. just the crazy stuff, uh, the intensity, the the drive and passion to win, and how much they love to play the game. And then, as soon as practice was over, I'd jump on the floor and you know want to shoot on one of the third or fourth. Uh, goalies and, and my uncle would be throwing me the ball and he'd come up and you know just come talk lacrosse just be so friendly so it was amazing to kind of see the two the two differences and just being around that environment and those drives on the way there my uncle would pick me up um, on his way uh, coming through Oakville and yeah just a lot of conversations a lot of talks and as a young kid you take that stuff for granted at the time but uh, the influence was incredible. Both you and uh, your uncle have had uh, not only exceptional careers but have had long careers and, and you're uh, still in the middle of it getting going um, in your early 30s, but over 700 points. But when you think about top class and whatever it is that you do, there is the difficulty to achieve to get there. And then how much more challenging it is to maintain that level of success. So if you think about your uncle and his ability to do it year after year after year, there are lessons I'm sure you've learned that have applied to your game in the NHL. But just tactically, I, I, I've never asked Johnny this, but I remember seeing him get out on the floor well before the game started in Buffalo. And then he would hang out after practices and shoot. And I think this is a commonality between lacrosse players and hockey players everywhere. 
if you're a shooter, you're just gonna you need to get reps with or without a goalie. But it is really important to get a goalie in the net, you know, because goalies play the game uniquely. They play the the shot and the flow of the game differently. And I've found a transition in my career how important it is to get goalies in the net. And it's difficult to, so you're gonna take a ton of shots without them, but. What did you think about that when you were younger? And would you have an opportunity, whether it's hockey or lacrosse, how meticulous were you about getting goalies in the net so you could work on your shot? I, it was always better. That's 100% sure. You know, I was really fortunate uh, minor hockey-wise. We had a great team playing for the Toronto Marlboros, and, you know, we won everything. You know, we had five or six guys play, play at least one NHL game off that team, which is pretty remarkable. So uh, and I remember being after practices and uh, our goalies would stay out there and we'd be playing shooting games and things like that. And uh, they, they love taking shots. So those guys, you got to give them a ton of credit. And then, you know, when I was at home and you didn't have that, I'd be begging my dad uh, to get in there when he get home after work Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I was really young. And then I think uh, that's something maybe I picked up off my uncle and, and even just something I developed myself was just, just having that uh, that imagination when you didn't have it and trying to recreate that um, visually, mentally, you just had that passion for the game. And then um, as you played it out, it's things that maybe you experienced at the time, whether it was playing on the ice, um, and then you're just in your basement, just recreating that or watching NHL games or professional hockey, or even I went to a lot of junior hockey games hmm. uh, when I was in minor hockey and just watching really talented players and their ability to score and the things that made them really good. And just trying to pick up on those on those details and, and try to practice those things. And I, I agree that uh, goalies were important, but I found that there was probably a, a lot of growth with just the imagination side mm. of it. And that was for me for hockey and lacrosse. I remember being in my basement, just trying to imitate my uncle every day. So yeah. um, watching his highlights, watching his games, and then just going down in the basement, trying to do all that stuff and amazing to watch and, and to uh, learn from. Yeah. Imagination is a huge part. I think a lot of the best athletes, grow up with that type of, and, and you probably see it in commercials, whether it's you're a basketball fan and you do the Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan 3-2-1 fadeaway shot at the buzzer, like that's part of imagination. But then thinking about as you're going through your reps, where the goalie is or where the defenders are, I think we're, we're a big part of uh, my practice growing up and even hearing that is, is a good reminder for people. When you were younger and practicing out on your own as a hockey player, did you practice because you felt like that was what was needed to get better or were you just getting out and practicing because you love the game a little bit of both how did you approach it i think certainly when i was really young is it's just what i love to do you know i remember uh seeing wayne gretzky talk about it he said that uh, when he was a kid it was never practice for him it was just what i love to do and i really can relate to that and, and feel the same way i think certainly as i got older and you get closer to junior hockey and you kind of see the opportunity that's starting to present itself there becomes a lot more of the, the diligent work that becomes involved some off ice training and getting into that and when you're younger you just you just kind of want to play games and you just want to go out and be in your basement or at practice just just playing and then you kind of realize you got to be a little bit more methodical you got to start to uh, understand the variables of the game and, and kind of um, how, how the game evolves as you kind of get older and, and those challenges that kind of come. So I, I think as a kid, it's just what I love to do. Um, I begged my parents to be on the ice as much as I could. You know, speaking about uh, the, my Toronto Marlboros minor hockey team, uh, Sam Gagne, who's who's played in the NHL for a long time, is uh, an extremely close friend. And he was on the team when I joined and, and he had a, a full outdoor rink, you know, mini Zamboni and, and the whole ice system oh, there in there. Go. And yeah. we'd have we'd have ice in... Uh, in November until March break in school. 
and the amount of hours we logged out there just because we loved to play. Those are some of my best memories in the game. Yeah. Uh, just because being outside, sometimes it'd be snowing so hard, we'd have to shovel every 15 minutes just to clear the snow off. Yeah. But we'd be there after practice on Saturday mornings right until, you know, Hockey Night in Canada started probably the second game. We probably missed the first game and, and watched the second game as the neighbors would start flickering their lights as uh, it was, getting, it was still, it was just way too loud. So yeah, that's just the, the love for the game that I know that uh, I still feel today. I think that's what uh, I know being uh, in the position I am, I'm very fortunate obviously because I get to do it for a career. I don't know too many people that, uh, and I'm sure you can relate to this, that have that same feeling they do as a kid and they still have it today and, and they get to do it as their career. I mean, I think it's a pretty special thing to have, so I don't take that for granted. So yeah, as a, as a kid, it was it was just a pure joy for the game, no question. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you think about lacrosse and hockey and, and my only exposure to hockey in the U.S. is in a southern environment where you don't have as much access to the ice. So I remember growing up, and, and we had a pretty good high school team at DeMatha, but their biggest issue was was ice time. And, um, you know, we, we play outdoors on a field, but I think our one of our biggest issues is getting access to a goal. Even now, as, as a professional player for almost 15 years, I still have a, a goal that sticks in the back of my truck, and so I can lug it around and drop it on a local park and rec field so I can shoot. I, I, love, I, yeah. I can relate. I can relate to even bringing the, the, the lax net around myself too. My parents yeah. would be telling me I'd be, I'd be busting up the basement too much. So yeah, I know what that fraternity is like in, in the lacrosse world, bringing the net anywhere and, and trying to find ways. And even in Ontario, it's, it's obviously the game's big here, especially the indoor game. And even then, you know, the access to, arenas and facilities was minimal too. It was a short period of time a year. A lot of the minor lacrosse teams would be using them. So just to have access to that, I was really fortunate. Close to where I grew up, there was a, there was an outdoor box. Um, they even ran some, we, I remember having some practices there with uh, my minor lacrosse team, uh, but it would get booked up a lot. And, and uh, yeah, same, I'd have to bring my net to my, my elementary school and yeah. you know, throw, throw it off there. So I, I feel, I feel you there. I noticed that, especially my time in Long Island, lacrosse nets everywhere. Obviously it's a, it's lacrosse hotbed in, yep. uh, in the U S and Hofstra's there. So I loved always seeing that just kind of driving by some of the elementary schools, the high schools and seeing the nets out and they were, they were out just kind of left there all, all night. And just thought that was great. I, I remember being, Oh, I would love that as a kid. I'd been unreal. If we, uh, if we would have had that access and those tools and those resources just to continue to inspire and, and uh, have the passion for the game. Yeah, it goes a long way, the market you grew up in. So Long Island and Baltimore still produce, I think, the most college lacrosse and pro lacrosse players. And now living out west in L.A. where our headquarters are, I still get those conversations, those comments from young kids. They're like, damn, it's not just about playing with top talent. It's just getting access to nets. And so I felt that when I was younger, even growing up in Maryland, as I was an hour and a half or so away from Baltimore, so like you, when I'd have an opportunity to, you know, find a, a grass field with, with a net or if I'd use a, a brick wall, I'd stay out in some cases have my dad turn the headlights on in his car well past dark so I could play. We didn't have lacrosse night in the U.S. to watch, so I had a couple of VHS tapes and I would watch the same college games over and over. But to that imagination point, like visually – watching the game at the highest level is also a part of practice i think there's there's a lot of research around visual learning absolutely i i can really relate to that too obviously you you want to see great plays and whatnot but even just your understanding and you know you don't realize it at the time i think 
but when you're when you have a, a tremendous passion for something the in you know the focus and, and just how in depth you're paying attention and just what you're retaining is it's pretty incredible yeah and i can speak to that in both sports you know and i can speak to the vhs lacrosse tapes too so yeah yeah <laughs> so you so you mentioned uh, gretzky we all got a chance to watch him no matter where you lived around the world and given that you played the same sport much like I looked at the Gates and the Pals, there was part of me as a competitor that wanted to do uh, as well as they were doing. There's a cross to bear for the select few in sports that set these irrational goals that often we don't get to, but the work ethic and commitment to like, why the fuck I even set this goal? It's so lofty, but I'm committed and I'm down that path. So you mentioned thinking about Gretzky when you were younger, as, as every hockey player around the world, I'm sure does, or lacrosse players like me did, and then have this fast career. And by the time you, know, you were 15, the OHL makes an you know, exception rule for you to play a year early. And then by the time you were 16, you beat Gretzky's goal record. Uh, I know you're not one to like to talk about yourself, but like those goals that you set that are lofty, that you end up getting... The next note that I wrote down is like, you actually don't really feel it because you set the next lofty goal, and at some point you hit a wall. Hundred percent. And that's the, that's kind of the, the trauma in going and and trying to exceed expectations. But what was that like for a younger kid? How did you get good so fast? And then once you were able to continue to move forward, how were you setting your goals for yourself? As a kid, I just loved to play. Like I said, and as I got older, I. I just continue to love to play. And obviously, you know, when you're playing a game, playing a sport, you're competitive and you want to go out there and do well and you want to go out there and be good every day that I played. I was very fortunate. My, my parents, especially my mom, who who took me to most of my hockey growing up, had a really good sense of the way I was feeling and maybe what the next challenge was and knowing just how eager I was for that. Uh, I played uh, with older kids pretty much my whole way up in minor hockey, mostly the 89 age group. And that was massive for me because I was always the youngest kid. And I think that really helped, especially when I went into junior hockey and was given the, given the exception to enter the league early because I was just basically entering with my peers. I've been yeah. playing with them for six or seven years. So I felt very comfortable uh, with myself and what I had been, if I had done, I think certainly all the attention was, I, I don't want to say new, but just to a, just to a way another level. Yeah. It wasn't just like at the minor hockey rinks, people talking, this was front page of some of the local papers and a lot of debate on whether it was the right thing. And, you know, I saw the negativity side of it for the first time. And um, I was like, I, I'm just, I'm just trying to do my best. I'm doing well. What's, what's wrong. I, I'm just growing on with uh, the kids that are, I've been playing with my whole life. So that was uh, all really new, and and uh, but for the most part, I just I just focused on um, playing my game, and and just just because I, I love to play, and I thought it was such a, an incredible opportunity, and it was really I think it really kind of clicked for me mentally that you know my dream of playing in the NHL is is extremely possible mm-hmm. if I you know continue to follow the path I'm on, stay committed, you know, continue to uh, focus on what's important, and not especially being a young teenager moving away from home. Not being influenced by different things. Um, I had very good people around me in Oshawa. Uh, had a great support system. So, you know, I had a lot of success right away um, that garnered even more attention. And beating Gretzky's record certainly was was one of those, which was uh, was, was an exceptional thing to do. It's, you know, something I, I'm very proud of. I don't set that as my goal, but but when that happened and being so young, that was my first time really, first time really being, being like, okay, so I did this. Now I have to 
top that. I don't think I ever thought of playing the game that way. Hmm. And I don't really think that's the right way to think about things and approach hmm. the game. But that was part of my learning process. The next year, I, I didn't have a very good season. Hmm. I think I dropped down to around 40 goals. Still put up a lot of points, more assists that year. But in general, my game was uh, was not very good. And I remember even a lot of uh, people talking publicly, especially because I, I had to play at least four years before being uh, draft eligible, which was basically, I don't know if anyone's done that before. It was very uncommon because right. I was also a late birthday for the NHL draft. So most players are two to three years in junior hockey before being drafted. So four years was a long time. It was a long time to get scouted. So after having two incredible years and then having a year that was certainly took some step, steps backwards with my game, uh, there was criticism coming in about whether I could carry that over professionally, whether people were talking I should be the first pick uh, by a long shot for those first couple of years, started questioning whether whether that would be the right choice for whatever team that was going to be. And it was a, it was a real challenging offseason for me. I really kind of looked internally for the first time and, and felt some really strong adversity. So hmm. uh, I always tell people that uh, playing four years in junior, you know, they're like, was that a really long time? You know, you were you were highly touted and could have went on to the NHL. And I was like, well, you know, it was the best thing for me. Yeah. I'm really glad I had those four years. So, yeah, junior hockey was was extremely beneficial. And, and there was some definitely – some real positives and some real challenges there that had some growth and then kind of had that similarly early in my NHL career. That was even probably even tougher on me just because that was, that's obviously what you dreamed about. That was level you wanted to get to. And then you, you had goals, you wanted things that uh, you wanted to accomplish. Obviously you have a, being a, a first overall pick, you're highly touted, you know, you're compared to a lot of guys. And I wouldn't say I put a ton of focus into that, but certainly you know, I worry about it more then than I ever do now. There were definitely some challenges that, uh, uh, when I look back, they were very positive for me. We're going to take a quick break in the action to talk about one of our show's presenting partners, public.com. They're an investing social network. It's a free app where you can own the companies you believe in and share ideas in a community of investors. How does this work? Well, there are built-in learning opportunities. There traditionally was a very steep curve to figuring out how to invest in the stock market. Not anymore. You can talk about companies and market trends and benefit from investors on the social platform of public.com. You can follow me there. I'm at Paul Rabel. Other people like Tony Hawk, who's been a guest on the show, to The Breakfast Club's Angela Yee and Professor Scott Galloway at NYU Stern School of Business. Public.com also has no commission fees when you start your investing, long-term investing, on all of those standard trades. All the other reps have those. And there are no account minimums to get started either. So you can invest in literally thousands of publicly traded companies for as little as $1. You can't do that with wealth managers. So sign up today at public.com forward slash suiting up. And I will personally get you started with $10 in free stock. That comes if you use that URL. So you can try it out and see for yourself. So public.com forward slash suiting up. Ready for the fine print? Valid for US residents 18 plus and subject to account approval. See public.com forward slash disclosures for more. This episode was also brought to you by Ticketmaster. They're the official ticketing partner of the Premier Lacrosse League, the Premier Lacrosse League powered by Ticketmaster. At the PLL, we're thrilled to announce our upcoming 2021 summer schedule in tandem with the Ticketmaster team. That accounts for fan and player safety as our priority with a top-class seat manifest at each of our venues and a joint COVID policy that's complying with all local and state outdoor venue capacities. We announced our schedule two weeks ago. We opened up tickets for the first five weekends at limited capacity. A couple of them have already reached that capacity. So if you haven't gotten your ticket and you live in one of those first five markets or you want to fly to one of them, check out Ticketmaster.com. Also a location for you to buy and sell tickets 
online for concerts, theater, family, and other events near you. But buy a ticket for the PLR. I, I wonder what your thoughts are related to this. Like we talked about earlier, your your love for the game hasn't changed, and we feel lucky about that. Have feeling the same way about hockey and lacrosse when we were first picking up a stick, and that's what keeps us going, and that's like kind of earth center for us. But the pressure, I wonder if that relatively had felt the same for you now in your career in the NHL when you were playing with Team Canada in the Olympics at the biggest stage to your first game as a pro being the number one draft pick. And then when I think about this, I wonder when it ends for athletes or if it just becomes too stressful, is it because they lose the same love and passion that you had when you were first playing and the pressure gets bigger. So this like gap exists. If we can just keep our love at the same level as the pressure, then you continue to succeed, I think, or continue to fight. So what, what's that relationship like, if that makes any sense? I think that relationship, the way I, I kind of look at pressure, I think there's a there's a quote uh, that I've seen that uh, I really like that, uh, you know, pressure is a gift that gives you a, gives you a rare opportunity to do something special. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously what you're doing has some really special meaning and some incredible purpose, you know, and whether you accomplish whatever that is or not, it's not, be- I know for me, it's, it's not because um, I didn't put everything I could into it. I know the way I try to approach the game because I love it. And because I know the way when I'm done playing, I know that I just know I don't want to have any regrets. I don't want to have any, you know, I wish I would have handled it this little differently. I want to know that every intention I made was the absolute best decision. I thought whether it was right or wrong, or I did the right thing, or I wish I handled something differently. I think we all go through that. I think it's a gift and and you should feel fortunate that you get to do something at this level that has uh, that has that type of opportunity to accomplish something very special. Um, especially as, as, as like you said, correlating the love that I have for the game feels the same way it does to me as I was a kid. Yeah. And now to have that opportunity to, uh, to accomplish, uh, something special. Obviously I hope that doesn't ever change for me. I want to play for a long time. So, but yeah, certainly I think there's at times I definitely have let pressure affect me more than others. Yeah. I'm um, not immune to it. I don't think anyone is. I think, uh, nope. we're all human, but I <laughs> yeah. think every experience is a learning opportunity and you learn and you grow and and i know where i'm at with you know my game and my mindset it's as strong and as as good as it's ever been uh only because i only continue to learn and as people tell you you know when you gain experience or as you get older you learn and understand things and when you're younger like okay what are they yeah sure you know what are they really talking about i think i'm really starting to understand what that really means yeah I think I enjoy having the puck in your stick game on the line. That's that's what it's all about. That's what I think makes playing the game special and trying to be a great player. That's very a very strong driving force. So the pressure I think is a great thing. I love that. When I reflect on my even you know first years in college having fantastic captains, first years in, in pros, both NLL and MLL, great captains. And great captains take a lot of pressure off the the way that we have to think about or address. Uh, certain challenges, complications, or outcomes. And in a way, they allow a lot of like aggressive players to be weightless and just go do what they do. Then at some point in your career, you shift over and you take the leadership role and you pull from some of the great captains that we've played for and you put your spin on it. And you know now you're the captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs and 
you know, for those that aren't as familiar with, with the NHL, it's basically like being the, the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys or the captain of Barcelona Football Club in your world. I mean, Toronto next to the Montreal Canadiens have you know, and not only an original six club, but most Stanley Cups. And so that history, I'd imagine, is even different for some of my buddies that live in Canada and grew up playing hockey and have been lifelong pros and consummate pros in the NLL. They used to explain, hey, Paul, the difference between playing for a Canadian club in the NHL versus American club is it's basically walking outside of your house. Everyone knows who you are. Um, and uh, it's basically like kind of that quarterback or, or star NBA player. So there's that, but as a captain now of one of the most storied franchises in pro sports, I'd imagine your day-to-day is different because now all of a sudden you're taking on that leadership, active leadership role and responsible for such. How do you think about going through you know, your list of responsibilities? There's definitely many ways to look at it, and this kind of goes back to my uncle a little bit. We're all people, and we're, we're not just hockey players, everyone has got their own kind of makeup and the way they tick and, and, you know, everyone brings something to the table and is going to contribute in some way, whether it's in a massive way that you know, our, our top players like uh, Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner do and type of talents that they are and, and the, how much uh, responsibility they have on the team, you know, to, uh, you know, some of the guys that are in and out of the lineup, our young prospects, guys that get called up from the minors. I think connecting with each and every person, trying to get to understand them, I think is extremely important. I try to really do that uh, by just being myself. I think people can see through the through the crap, through the bullshit. I, I've uh, been very fortunate to be around uh, so many great leaders, starting with my uncle and, yeah. and being around that, like I mentioned, the way he treated each and every one of his teammates. And then uh, my time in New York with uh, Doug Waite, Mark Streit. And even kind of the assistant captains, the supporting cast I had around me, I was a young captain there. And certainly at times I probably felt uh, certain things. I, As I look back, you know, could I have handled them differently? I don't know. I Because I, like I said, I always put the best intentions forward. But they're those guys I I, I relied on extremely. Guys like Kyle Poso, Matt Molson, Franz Nielsen, Cal Clutterbuck, Josh Bailey. Uh, these are guys that I, I, I realized to be a good captain, you really got to have a good supporting cast of leaders, hmm. guys that you can really lean on and checking in with those guys all the time, seeing what their kind of their viewpoint is, how they see things going on, helps me kind of digest my thoughts and uh, how to kind of deal with the team and, and how to handle certain situations, you know, bringing the, the right approach, the right mindset. So. That's another thing. I, I think this goes along with just my, my preparation and, and how much I enjoy just getting ready to play. And like I said, uh, not leaving any stone unturned and, and uh, not having any regrets of my career. But uh, I think the captain really sets the tone that way, the way yeah. he prepares, uh, the way he approaches the game. I think it just sets a certain standard, um, trying to build a certain culture, trying to pull people into the fight Yeah. and wanting wanting to do something special. So I, I, I know for me, that's just, I just try to make that part of who I am. And like I said before, when, uh, uh, when you can just be yourself, you just be as authentic as possible and you can make, you know, you can connect with people on a, on a bigger level than just passing or shooting a puck, um, getting to know each other. You spend so much time with these guys and all these people in the organization, you develop those, those strong, real connections that go, go further than, uh, just playing the game. Yeah. You know, certainly there's times, uh, Things get a little bit more heated or you have discussions that, uh, you know, there's different viewpoints and whatnot, but that's where you have that uh, that understanding of who you are and they know and can uh, respect what your values are and the type of guy you are. That that's, uh, Those conversations uh, can be very constructive. So on a daily basis, that's just kind of how 
I approach it. And, you know, I've been very fortunate to play for two great franchises that have great legacies. And certainly, like you said about the Maple Leafs and the history is incredible. So yeah, to play under that, to be a part of that now, just don't take that for granted. It's not going to last forever. So I just try to enjoy each day. Some days are tougher than others. So those two organizations and then uh, Team Canada in the Olympics in 2014. Yes. So greatest team ever. Um, but also uh, the last time Team Canada has gotten NHLers, at least on the ice during the Olympics, as they, I don't know if they outlawed or prohibited or just recommended they don't in, in 2018. Well, there's always a debate because it, it stops our season. Yeah. So, you know, from the league standpoint, ownership standpoint, game stop, revenue stops, risk of injury. Yep. Which happened to me at the Olympics. Yep. It's in February, which, you know, it's only hockey and basketball really on TV. You know, there's a little bit of golf, but it's really kind of the high point of the season, revenue-wise and uh, broadcast-wise. I know the league always feels like it's a tough pill to swallow, but I think in the big picture, when you're on the Olympic stage with the best players in the world playing around the, playing around the world, and international hockey's got some tremendous history and moments. Yeah. Yeah. It's not something we do very much. It's once every four years where we see true best on best. You know, to me, it's an easy sacrifice to make for the long for the long haul. But anyways, that's a that's another discussion. But uh, <laughs> to be on that team. One of the things I'm most proud of, just because of the depth of, of talent in Canada, you know, you could really make multiple teams. Uh, so to be on that team, to be selected, uh, was pretty incredible. Yeah. And I, I remember just uh, always in the locker room, just just the confidence, just the, the belief. As you know, so many so many guys in that locker room are captains or leaders on their teams or some are the best players in their team. Got some all time greats that have been on that team. Guys like Sidney Crosby, Carey Price, the goaltender. Yep. You know, just the just the confidence they had no, never wavered. Uh, and I remember being in the quarterfinal game. It was the game I got hurt. I hurt my knee halfway through the game. And their goalie was playing lights out. It was a tight game, extremely tight. We were heavily favored to win. Would have been one of the biggest upsets probably in international history. Hmm. And in a one-game scenario, it's amazing um, what can happen sometimes. But the calmness, the focus, being in that locker room, what I learned in that experience from around those players that had won Stanley Cups, um, as I was pretty young still uh, on that team uh, and just seeing how they handled those situations. And a lot of those guys that were on that team as well were on the 2010 team that had probably as much pressure as any hockey team has ever had playing on home soil in Vancouver. Mm. The expectation to win gold, Canada hadn't won, or, well, Canada hadn't won gold since 02. But uh, the pressure on so, on home soil like that, the expectation, and, and they – they kind of stumbled and had to go the long route, the hard route, and got it done. So you could see just the amount of experience. I got a good understanding of that. And and in that game, that, that was where it was really heightened for me, um, just because their guys were just so locked in on just staying the course and playing the game and not getting too emotional or too upset that things weren't going our way. And, and we ended up finding a way. And, you know, unfortunately, I didn't get to play in the semifinal and the final. That's what you dream about. But yeah. uh, to have a, an Olympic gold medal put around my neck and to be a part of that team, Something I'm very proud of. I'm very, I'm very grateful for. I remember bringing the medal back and showing my grandparents. One of the most uh, proud things that uh, I've ever done, just uh, knowing their road to come to Canada from Portugal mm. and the sacrifice they make to, to make a better life for their family. And now uh, their grand, their grandson is an Olympic champion. You know, as I think about your career, that was a, a, a pivotal mo- moment in your journey during the lockout year of 2012 and 13. You decided to go overseas and play. Again, like just kind of hears like and sounds like that level of uh, experience in learning from other players you're playing with and against 
similar to you growing up and watching Hockey Night in Canada and visually picking up things and then pulling that in and using it as confidence or skill development for your next seasons. So this tournament, you tore your MCL. What did what was your approach like in, in recovery? Um, uh, there's probably a lot of things you were processing. You were playing for the greatest team ever. You won a gold medal. You didn't get to play in, in the final. And then you couldn't play out the rest of the season. You guys were hot uh, with the Islanders. So it's like, how do you compartmentalize and process where you just zeroed in on recovery and if so like what do you recommend to people out there? there's a lot of athletes that deal with injury and recovery uh, obviously it was really disappointing but being at the olympics and i think being so young it's young still i was yeah. very naive to kind of what was going on and obviously you know you win a gold medal you're you know you're on top of the world even though i didn't get to play in the final two games but uh, i remember getting home and you know my my previous three seasons there'd been some pretty good progression in my career and in my game yeah. and what I was accomplishing and kind of the level I was getting to. And uh, I knew this was going to be a real pivotal time because I, I wasn't going to, you know, we weren't making the playoffs with the Islanders. I was done for the season. It was a long, long time off. It was, you know, mid February till early October. So it's as long as I, I've had in between playing games and, and probably as, as long as I can remember at that time, and I knew it was a crucial thing, especially a major injury like that, especially at that age, how important it is to rehab something like that properly. That's not something that compounds, becomes a problem over time yeah, um, and starts affecting me, especially in supposed to be the best years of my career, my prime years, as everyone likes to say. So, um, and just the longevity that I want to have and the consistency I want to play at. So just the diligency that I just started to put in a plan and just try to surround myself with a really good team of people. Organization with the Islanders were great, just from what they gave me to when I when I came back home to rehab. You know, I made a, a pretty pivotal decision in my life. I, I was uh, I decided to tra- change trainers at the time, because hmm. I was with my my previous trainer for about ten years, who uh, took me in when I was fourteen, fifteen years old, and, and was really like a like an uncle and just uh, so uh, influential and and uh, been through a lot. And uh, he saw a lot of my ups and downs and helped push me. Uh, especially off the ice. It was kind of at one of those moments. It was it was a big growing up moment uh, for me just because I knew it was the next step. It was the evolution. It was the right thing to do, but it wasn't easy because it, it felt like uh, felt like a, break, a breakup almost. <laughs> hmm. But uh, it was just, uh, there, there was a lot that was kind of in that time of my life that uh, was really important for me. I had a, an incredible rehab, an incredible offseason. I think that was one of the best years of my career coming off that injury. Yeah, And I, I, I attribute a lot just because that was just part of my growth. It wasn't because uh previous trainer I had was not very good or whatnot. It was yep. just the right thing at the right time in my career, in my life, that it was something I had to evolve and, and change to. So yeah, that was a, that was a big turning point for me in, in a few areas that uh, I think propelled me really well into the next few years of my career. What were you doing differently? Was it like a focus more on mobility versus strength building, speed, hand-eye coordination? Was it just a lot of like prehabilitation instead of rehabilitation post injury? Like what, what were the mechanics there? There's a little bit of that, like the prehab rehab. I think there's a combination of that, but uh, it's very, uh, as I, as I learned, especially through that experience, it's really easy. Something pretty significant like that can just affect the whole chain with the way your body works and even yeah. how, you know, neurologically those connections become diminished and trying to get uh, things to fire a certain way and fire properly re-stimulating those connections and, and, and the way you're trying to use your leg, use your knee and try to even just use your whole body in, in yeah. the most efficient way possibly as a hockey player. So um, I remember doing a lot of gymnastics work 
Oh, wow. Something that I still do a little bit of not actual gymnastics work, but, you know, being on the trampolines, being on the floorboard and just that type of uh, stimulus from those variables and just rebuilding the strength, the type of uh, connections that I'm trying to make mentally and trusting your knee and getting it to fire properly and work properly. So, you know, once you get back on the ice, you know, you'd like to almost think that you're in a better position. You're not just trying to get back to where you were. So yeah, that was kind of my goal is like, how can I use this to actually get better? And it lets you kind of really start from scratch. That's kind of, I think I've tried to approach injuries is like, okay, this allows me, unless you're in season sometimes and you're really trying to get back, back into playing, especially when I've had some couple uh, major injuries that led, uh, you know, for whatever reason, have kind of led me into off seasons that you try to really use it as a way to kind of reassess and start from scratch and really build slowly. And I would say that was kind of one of the unique things that I was, I did for the first time that uh, uh, it was uh, eye opening and just even just the way that I felt and noticing those things that uh, uh, started making a major difference for me. We're going to take our second and final break of the show to highlight our other presenting partner, OutSystems. They are a partner of ours that keeps our business going. They make applications that make the difference and solve the needs for your company. Allow me to explain. OutSystems empowers their internal teams to develop and deploy innovative cloud apps for capturing new markets so you and I can focus on the services that we do as a core company. So for you technical heads out there, OutSystems can tackle your backlog. They leverage new tech. They have an incredible UI UX, which is your user interface, user experience. When you click on an app, is it enjoyable? Is it easy to use? We use them, and that app was brilliant last year to create the proper and appropriate COVID medically safe environment, checking with all of our players, staff, and anyone involved. That helped us clear all regulatory health and safety protocol, and it made for a great experience. We're using OutSystems again in 2021. They also work with the likes of Mercedes-Benz, Warner Brothers, Honda, Exxon, and much more. You can build the difference with OutSystems at any size, small and large, at OutSystems.com. You mentioned injuries that get prolonged and dealt with in the offseason. I would say that is one of the differences between a lot of Eastern philosophy and sport, which you get in hockey, you get in soccer, and we'll just call it football. They are much more, I think, focused and uh, committed to the immediate time an athlete has soft tissue, they'll pull them off the pitch. And I remember this at the fucking highest level watching the World Cup. It was either last World Cup or the one that preceded that with Cristiano Ronaldo playing in a semifinal for Portugal and his hamstring pulls, and they pull him off the field. And that was it. And and I know that, you know, we're talking about, just like in hockey, especially overseas with, with an athlete like Ronaldo, I mean, he's a billion-dollar athlete, and there is a similar confluence of international to club duty and not allowing an injury to get bigger and then he's off the pitch for Madrid but they pull it off in American sports or or even in in hockey I think more than a lot of American sports we were we play through those injuries uh, as contact sports in football hockey and, and lacrosse but that makes the road to recovery more difficult a lot of fans can just say oh it's a softer game and, and referencing soccer to hockey but I do think it's embedded in culture to you know try to get through your injury until the off season. Would you say that feels accurate? I think each scenario is kind of different. For sure, I think some some injuries. It's you know, it'd be nice if we had a lot of time. Depending on the situation, and, and especially in professional sports, just so many variables that come into play. Yeah. Sure, you see it more in, in amateur sports, college sports, 
you know, players willing to kind of shut it down if they have major injuries and really do the diligent rehab that's needed because they know how much it might affect their professional career. Um, or professionally, you know, you're trying to, you know, stay at peak performance for as long as you can to obviously sustain your career as long as you can and make an impact uh, the way you can. And not everyone has, I think, the the opportunity to, you know, maybe be like, this is really the best thing. I got to take some time off, even though this is something that I can maybe deal with and play with because, you know, I, I want to make sure I'm being out there and contributing to the team and I don't want to lose my spot. So, and, and, and I think in general, I think as a, as a competitor, uh, I'm just speaking for myself, you know, you want to be out there, you want to play, you don't want to miss time. Yep. Careers are so short. So you feel like if it's something that you can, you can manage and, you know, the evolution of sports science has been unbelievable that uh, the, the ability to manage workloads and, type of therapies modalities that are available or the understanding of how to manage uh, some of these these injuries or nagging things that kind of develop over a career or maybe at some point you feel uh, maybe this would be really good to take some time to really kind of get to the bottom of this and fix this and really take my time coming back things have just come such a long way with being able to manage things and yeah un- understand kind of what you got going on and, and still be able to perform at a high level so but not saying that there hasn't been situations maybe that I've seen, you know, certain athletes that have done uh, where they felt like, you know what, I need to, I need to reassess where I'm at. This is something that's kind of maybe inhibiting me. I'm still performing at a good level, but if I, if I start from scratch, I can rebuild. This is only going to help me in the long run and make me become a better player, better athlete, even, even if it means I'm going to miss some playing time. I'm going to yeah. miss some of the season. So I think it's really a tough thing for a competitor to do, especially in a team sport. Yeah, I think you see it in a lot more of other the individual sports, whether it's golf or tennis. I think Roger, Roger and Rafa have done tremendous jobs of dealing with some significant things or nagging things, and they continue to come back stronger, better than ever. Yeah, now you see a lot of golfers do it as well. So, I think there's just a lot of variables that come into play in each situation. It is really complex. You're right. There's the moment of feeling like, hey, we're on a playoff run, and and every athlete worth his weight in salt is going to do everything they can to be on the floor or ice, grass, in the pool, on the field to uh, to have an impact should you have a say in it. But then there's the risk of losing your spot. As you had mentioned, there's the longevity. Can you even have longevity? There, there, it's just really dynamic. Exactly. And you had even called out earlier the notion of being in your prime or what people tell us are our primes. Um, and you've gone through injury, you've played for different organizations internationally, overseas, and then, you know, you transition over to the Maple Leafs and with a lot of these learnings have had one of your best seasons preceding this past year in, in the bubble, 47 goals, 41 assists. Are there moments where you feel like on the ice you're in a flow state? Is it kind of a moment where you can exhale back to normalcy. How do you feel like your game has transitioned and evolved? It's not, it's not easy changing teams, especially as, as much as I was uh, in New York for, I was there for a long time. Uh, it's all I ever known. So I made a, a very significant decision in my career and my life. And um, I knew obviously I was coming to a very talented team in Toronto, some tremendous young talent that being around that was not just going to be a competitive team and somewhere where I could excel for the short term, but for the long term, because I like I talked to you about on the longevity side of it. Yeah, I've certainly just continued to get, I think, stronger with my mindset and the way I approach the game and how I handle when things go well, don't go well and what I'm focusing on and what truly matters. And it's like one famous coach says, uh, ignore the noise. So, you know, I really just try to focus uh, on, on really what matters and what matters to me. And certainly there's no doubt there's been points in my career being in that flow state and being into that rhythm and, and having 
stretches or seasons that uh, you just seem kind of locked in and, and you, you just have such a good feel for the game and your role in the team and the, the, the way the year's kind of going. The year after the, the, the MCL injury was certainly one of those years. You know, my first year uh, in Toronto was definitely one of those years. So there's definitely when everything seems to kind of fit really well, and one of the one constants that always seems kind of that works well for me that way is having really good off seasons. Mm-hmm. And uh, the off season coming into my second year, you know, I got I went I went over to the World Championships after my first year in Toronto. And we got knocked out. Of, we got uh, knocked out of the first round, hurt my oblique, and just was one of those weird, quirky injuries that just seemed just took really long to kind of get over, and just kind of didn't really allow me to really push the envelope on the things that I wanted to work on and been through a lot of change in my life from the summer of, uh, I think it's 2018, uh, into that summer, you know, really into when the pandemic hit. So, you know, it's amazing when I, I can assess and you look back at the big picture and make those correlations and then kind of hone in on ways to adapt, to stay healthy so you can maximize your time to get better. And then when you do battle with injuries, how can I still maintain a very high level, even though you're inhibited in certain ways? So, I think certainly that's a lot of that's just become from my mindset, from my experience, things that I've learned, other athletes that you look at and things that you, you read about and you, you try to surround yourself. And um, certainly both organizations I play for, the people that have been there that have helped uh, challenge you, you know, give you thoughts and feedback and cr- constructive criticism, resources, highlight the good things. I think all that comes into play. Uh, and there's nothing better when you when you get that feeling of being in being in the zone or just being locked in on the way you need to play. And uh, especially in our game, in such a team sport um, when the team's locked in and you're locked in, there's nothing like it. Yeah. I like that. Uh, having great off seasons and finding the constants. Um, this is a, a pretty tricky off season for both of us trying to figure out what's next uh, amidst a global pandemic. And you're an alternative rep for the NHLPA. You and I've talked about it a couple of weeks ago, the path to where the NHL is going to be in 2021, having to deal with the quick pivot to a bubble, finding those those constants is probably even more so important this off season um, as you get your training in. And another constant in, in your life now is uh, is having a son, Jace, and he was born in September. So I'd imagine that has provided a lot of fulfillment in your life and additional responsibilities, but perhaps uh, putting the sweater on him, already put him on a fast track to being a Maple Leaf, but uh, but how how's that been for you? It's been incredible. You know, having a family, now having a son, um, having a child, you know, people always said, well, you're not going to have as much time to commit yourself to the game or, you know, do what you need to do. And uh, certainly there's no question. I think I truly understand this now having a family, having a, having a son, there's nothing greater in life. There's nothing more important in life. That's my greatest accomplishment. The most important thing to do is to nurture and guide and to love uh, him as best I can. But in terms of, you know, when I think about my motivation or passion for the game, I almost feel not that I diminished the meaning before, but now having him to be a part of it and have, and trying to set that example of, you know, just being me and just trying to live my life the best way and the what I think is the most right way possible and setting that example. Uh, and then to share my passion with him as he gets older. And it, it makes, you know, playing in my career almost, I, I feel like more meaningful. The appreciation for the game and the the commitment, the focus, determination, I almost think is greater, not because I, I try to make it greater, but it's because I've been given this incredible gift of, of having a son and having him to be a part of this and then to uh, to be a father and, and to be a professional hockey player, it's you know to me it just doesn't get any better than that. So it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. 
it's been uh, really what's been part of the true blessing of uh, the pandemic for me is to be home as much as I've been. Hmm. I don't know when the last time I, maybe probably when I was 14 years old, 13 years old, last time I haven't been on an airplane for this long. Yeah, I feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, and I've been home every day. So to see him grow, especially at his age, he's just, you know, just turned one in September. So to see that growth at, at this stage, to have that type of uh, time, opportunity to connect and bond like you can, you'll never get this again. And with any more kids, me and my wife have, I mean, we're, we're actually expecting uh, in a few weeks here or second. So, wow. you know, I don't know if we're ever going to get a time like this again, where you spend this much time at home. It's a deep answer, but I really do feel that uh, having him in my life and, and uh, another little one here soon, it just makes everything that much more meaningful in my life and certainly my career. So, um, and to be able to share that with, with him and his sibling, I'm, I can't wait. It's, yeah. it's what makes uh, uh, life so special. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the fear that other people will place on our shoulders for themselves around not having enough time for our ability to perform. And, and now all of a sudden, you know, you're, you have a second on your way, but uh, you were married and started a family and, uh, you know, you have sponsors and different things like that. Is it all distraction from your ability to play? And I've always pushed back on that. And uniquely uh, in a position where lacrosse wages aren't the way that uh, NHL wages are. So we've always had to, and a lot of guys have different occupations or short-term gigs that uh, for me, it was like, as I was continuing to improve, I was I started challenging that theory in general. And then I started looking at other athletes that have families that have investments and do different things in the community. I think it's actually healthy and we can be better performers when there are more things going on in our life versus fewer. Um, and it helps us in a more well-rounded environment, especially in, in, a where, in a world where we have to deal with a lot of singular pressure once the season starts. Um, and you've also done this with your foundation. So you started a foundation and uh, your mission is to work with kids everywhere and focus on proper nutrition, healthy lifestyle, emotional well-being. And so that narrative um, you know, fits what we've discussed a lot tonight. What was the moment for you where, where you felt like, all right, I'm back home, I'm playing for the club I grew up loving, and I'm gonna, I want to give more to the community and, and start investing there? Your whole point there is bang on. Doing, you know, not just commit or consume myself with hockey doesn't mean if I have other things going on in my life, I can't be a great hockey player and I can't be as focused or as determined and as detailed as you need to be. I actually, like you said, I think it helps you grow because it gets you outside of that bubble of just being a hockey player and kind of identifying yourself with that. And then it's all about just setting your priorities straight and understanding what what are the the most important things uh, to me that I want to do on a daily basis, what, what I... Uh, what I want to do, I think those priorities, which I think become easy because when you know what's important, uh, what matters most to you, that allows allows you to allocate your time and uh, be able to do all these things that you can. So the foundation's been, uh, is uh, something that uh, means a lot to me. It means a lot to uh, my family. Uh, they're a big part of it as well. It's uh, been a long time coming. It's something I've, I thought long about for, for years, whether it was a foundation or just, just giving back. When I look uh, back at my life at 30 years old, uh, we're still, I hope, so so much good ahead. I've been touched and been really fortunate to have so many great influences, so many great people, whether it's family, friends, coaches, teachers, organizations, everywhere I've been to get me where I am today, to help me have this passion, this love for a game, to you know be in a great place in my life with uh, be the captain for one of the, one of the uh, most historic organizations in the NHL. 
to, to having a family, you know, it really doesn't get much better than that. So I knew that uh, I was, uh, I'm in a fortunate position that, uh, you know, you can help a lot of other people all kind of came back to me as this passion as a kid, I kind of found what my passion was and I've been fortunate to make a career, but, uh, it's done so much for my life, you know, whether you can help any kid or any individual, um, find what they love to do whether it becomes their career or just helps them shape into who they want to be is I, I think something that uh, is very powerful, is very powerful for me. It's kind of been uh, the constant driving force in my life is how to help people kind of be passionate uh, and find their passion, what they want to do and do that through really healthy ways. And this is all things that I think are really valuable in my life that can, can relate to anyone. And, and those, you know, those core values, being active, playing different sports, which I did as a kid and in doing that, you make connections and relationships with so many people and, builds your confidence and self-esteem, you know, nutrition and health has really become a real focal point in my life, not just as a hockey player, but just my overall well-being and state of mind and the way I feel on a daily basis, creating equal opportunities for all and trying to remove some of those barriers and hurdles for, for all backgrounds, wherever you come from, whatever color of skin that you have, uh, whatever challenges you may face. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's consistent. And, uh, you know, to how, to how we first met, even as a captain here, you building some off season programming to have folks come in and interact. And, and I was humbled to be able to do that with, with you and, and the organization. And then to, uh, return the favor back here for this podcast means a lot to me and our listeners. So I think the, a lot of takeaways for me are consistency, are rebuilding in the off season, finding constants in your life, giving back, and uh, in a world where sports can be so overly consumed and criticized and pressure ramps up as athletes and high performers to be able to distill it down to what matters, have some level of stoicism, and then work across our locker room to build that level of camaraderie because in team sports, we are in it together, speaks volumes. So all that work you're doing in the community, everything you've done in your career, man, we're big supporters over here. I have a Maple Leafs kit that when I was uh, traded there, and I, I actually never played for Toronto, but but after the trade, I was given uh, one of the Toronto Maple Leaf sweaters. So I'll have to show you. I'll, I'll text you a picture of it. But that's pretty, uh, uh, that's pretty sweet. You got it. I got to get some PLL gear. There you go. Yeah, we'll we'll send you some. I'm also going to send you a book if you haven't read it yet. It's called Captain's Class by Sam Walker. Yeah, I love that. I'm always welcome to a good book. So don't buy it. I'll send it and uh, and appreciate you uh, hopping on. I know the season is right around the corner, so we'll be watching. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was uh, this was great. Love talking some good lacrosse and uh, anytime I can. Uh, you know, learn from uh, great leaders, uh, people that, uh, you know, think outside the box, great at their sport and what they do and try to just pick their brain and learn from. So this was a lot of fun and, and uh, thank you and, and uh, love what you're doing with the PLL too. So it's pretty, uh, pretty incredible. And, you know, just love seeing the sport of lacrosse grow. It's such a great game and, and what you're doing for it's tremendous. Again, a special shout out to Johnny T for joining us on Suiting Up. He told me before we started that this was his first podcast he ever recorded Though he is a ferocious consumer of them, you were fired today, JT. Thanks for taking the time. And go make it happen on the ice tonight, later this week, and into the playoffs. We're Maple Leafs fans right now. Brett and I. Let's go. Toronto. Let's Ooh, fucking go. Let's go, Leafs. Now, please consider subscribing to this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And while you're at it, give us a short rating and review. Five stars would be greatly appreciated. And if you want to engage directly, let us know what you think on Twitter. I'm at Paul Rabel, and he's at 91 Tavares. 
This show is presented by public.com. They create a whole new way to invest. Public also makes the stock market social, so you can follow other investors like me. I'm at Paul Rabel. This week, I talked about Disney versus Amazon and the pursuit of the Indian Cricket League's media rights next year. Might seem super niche, but it is carrying north of 100 million subscribers. You'll have to read my blog on that and many others. I talk about sports media and tech. Check out public.com forward slash suiting up to get involved. And OutSystems, they provide tools to help companies quickly build apps from web to mobile, et cetera. The PLL uses OutSystems, so should you. Check out OutSystems.com. And lastly, everything today was made possible by our incredible team at PLL Podcast. This show is produced and edited by Brett Roberts, the research by Andrew Manning, who's a big uh, Maple Leafs fan. Graphics and design by Liam Murphy, coordinated by RJ Kaminsky, and our overtime newsletter from Joe Keegan. We'll see you next week, episode 13, featuring the wonderful media mogul, Ariana Huffington.